Amen. Thank you for the good singing tonight. And we praise the Lord once again for an opportunity to open His Word as we study through the book of Ephesians. Very soon I'll be coming to the end of our Sunday evening series. I've been talking about Old Testament events on Sunday evening. And I've been praying and thinking about what the next series that I should preach is going to be. And I'm considering uh, going into a systematic theology and uh, might be a little bit more difficult and deeper than some things that we've done in the past on Sunday night. But that's one of the considerations, and perhaps at the beginning of the year we may do that. But right here in the book of Ephesians, we have the opportunity to look at some good theology. And in this particular chapter that we're studying, chapter 3 of Ephesians, there is some deep theology. And uh, tonight, we're not necessarily going to be so deep, but we are going to talk about something very important. We're talking about a very powerful prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesian Christians. There are several of Paul's prayers that are recorded throughout the Scripture, but I don't think that you could go anywhere in the Bible, anywhere in the writings of Paul, and find anything that's, that's really as eloquent as what Paul prays here. Last week in the message, we have an, had an overview of the entire prayer, but this evening I want to begin an exposition of his prayer, and we're going to talk about more particular things that he prays for and why these things are so important. Now, many times uh, as you read the prayers in Scripture... It's not the things that are actually prayed for that need to be considered. Sometimes it's the things that are not prayed for. And sometimes the conspicuous part of the prayer is the thing that isn't prayed for. And so sometimes when we think about prayer, we have to look at the negative side as well as the positive. And there are some particular things that Paul didn't pray for as we look at this prayer. Now, I would think that if we were praying as Paul was praying and praying at the same time that he was praying we would possibly be thinking about physical problems. I mean, here are Christians in Ephesus who are are very heavily persecuted. These are people in a place where even Paul, while he was preaching there, was thrown to the lions and had to defend himself against wild beasts. And so you would think that as Paul begins to pray for these Christians, that the first thing that would be on his mind would be the outward circumstances. What's going on with them physically? Perhaps that's what he ought to pray for. But we notice in this prayer that Paul doesn't even talk about that. We might also think that Paul would pray for their physical nourishment. Because we know this, that when people in the first century, uh, especially in a place like Ephesus, when they came to know the Lord and when they confessed their faith, many times they were ostracized. And so that meant that they might lose their jobs. Uh, They might lose their living. They might lose a business. But we see that that's not what Paul prays for here. At some point, Paul probably did pray for this thing, these things for these Christians. I have no doubt that he did. But in this particular prayer, he's praying for more significant things because he's praying about spiritual matters. And that's the thing that's on his mind. Then we also notice about this prayer that it's not a general prayer. Sometimes we'll pray very generally. We may get up and we just say, well, Lord, bless all of your people. Just give everybody a blessing. There's not anything necessarily wrong with praying that way, but it's also good to pray specifically, and we need to do that. Because when you pray specifically and you receive the answer, then you know exactly what that answer is for and what God has done in a particular case. So that's what Paul is doing here. He's praying specifically, and he's praying spiritually. He's praying for the spiritual man rather than the physical man. Now, tonight I want to consider just one of the petitions of Paul's prayer. In the next four or five weeks, we're going to break it down and continue to talk about other petitions. But tonight, we're going to talk about just one thing that Paul prayed for. 
And uh, we're going to read this from the book of Ephesians chapter 3. So if you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's word. We're going to uh, just read three verses here tonight. Uh, the beginning of this prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 14. Paul says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. We ask you, Lord, as we consider this petition of Paul's prayer tonight, that you'd help us to understand what's here for us, how this applies to us, and, Lord, how we also need to be strengthened in the inner or the spiritual man. We'll give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to look at verse number 16 again, if you would. Paul says that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. And the subject of the message tonight is strengthening the spiritual man. As we think about the kind of prayers that we ought to pray and Christians ought to pray, we need to consider this, that there is more required of Christians simply than they just be Christians. Now, this is for sure that when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you're born again and you enter into the kingdom of God, that's the greatest moment of your life. I don't think any one of us would argue that coming to know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior is the number one greatest experience that you'll ever go through. But unfortunately, for many Christians... They are saved, they are at that point, but they just don't go any further. They're content to know that they're saved, but they don't progress any further in their Christian life. They're content to know that they're in God's kingdom. They know Jesus as the Savior. They are convinced, I'm not going to hell, I'm going to heaven. I'm all right in that regard, but that's enough for me. I really don't need to know much more than that. But as we read the scriptures here and what Paul is praying for, that's not the idea that he has for these Christians. And if that were his idea, we wouldn't even be reading the book of Ephesians. He wouldn't even be talking about these things. He wouldn't waste his time writing this book if all there was to the Christian life was simply to know Jesus as the Savior. That's important, but that's not all there is to being a Christian. So why does Paul spend more time? These people are saved. They're on their way to heaven. So why does he deal any further with them? He's been to Ephesus. He's preached the gospel to them. They have received Christ. What's the need of talking more about this? Well, we're reading more here in the book of Ephesians because there is more. There's more to know. There's a deeper, meaningful Christian life that's out there. And Paul is one, wants to help these Ephesians attain that better life. Jesus' words were, I am come that they might have life. But Jesus didn't stop there, did he? He said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And so this is what Paul is talking about. Paul's intention is to get these people to the abundant life so that they enjoy their life while they're living. And of course, many Christians don't. Many Christians don't enjoy their life while they're living. They're looking for heaven. They're hoping to get there, but they're not really enjoying their Christian life. Now, we would think that in order for these people to enjoy their life, that they do need to get rid of that persecution. They need to get rid of all these problems of the the physical man, the the things that lie outside uh, of their spiritual man. And that's what we need to get rid of. And if we have all of that right, then we can be happy in our lives. But the abundant life and being filled with the fullness of God 
is not attained by the physical. It's not the outward circumstances that bring a Christian happiness. Now, the only way that we can have this and we can achieve the kind of life that Paul talks about and what Jesus talks about is to be strengthened with might by the, in, in the inner man. We have to have that. It's spiritual strength that we need. So I'm going to talk to you tonight about spiritual strength. And I'm going to show you three different lessons about spiritual strength. First of all, would you notice the essential strength? One other word, strength is essential for Christians. Strength is necessary. It's essential for you to, in order for you to live in this world without being so overcome by the world that you end up in depression. And friend, if you're not relying on spiritual strength, you are doomed and defeated in this life. You'll live a defeated life. You'll never be where you ought to be. You'll never be where you want to be. You'll never be where God wants you to be. It's not until you've taken care to nurture the spiritual man or the inner man that you'll find happiness as a Christian. So why do we need strength? Well, we need it for two main reasons. First, because of spiritual immaturity. Every person who becomes a born-again believer starts out this way. You start out with spiritual immaturity. You come into the Christian life as a baby. What's, what's being saved called? It's being called born again. Being born again. And so everybody who is born again starts out in their Christian life as a baby. Now, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. And so it's very clear from reading that scripture that spiritual does not equate with being a baby. Spiritual doesn't equate with being a baby. Carnality is what equates with infancy. Now, Paul said, I have to speak to you in very simple ways, on simple things, because you have not yet overcome your fleshly nature. You haven't yet learned how to deal with the obstacles in your life. You are still a spiritual baby, and you act like spiritual babies. Now, that's not a very hard comparison for us to understand, is it? When a baby comes into the world, it has physical limitations. Our little baby's over there. If you didn't know it, in the, uh, in the uh, nursery, Clarissa's here with us tonight, and our little new little grandbaby's over there. And that little baby has to be nurtured. The baby has to be taken care of because babies can't do anything on their own. And a Christian is the very same way. When you come into the Christian life, there has to be a period of strengthening. There has to be a time of growth and maturing. Now, sometimes people, Christians, are not willing to go through that growth process. And so they want to step into certain ministries of the church. They want to be given certain jobs in the church. They want to be able to do something. But they want to get to that place without the process of going through the spiritual growth. They, they don't want to go through the attaining of the knowledge, the acquiring of knowledge that's necessary to enter into some kind of a ministry. And you know what happens when you tell them that? When you go to a Christian like that and you tell them, I'm sorry, I just don't think you're quite ready for this ministry. You're not ready for that yet. And you know what happens? They'll get angry about it. They get upset about it. And what do they do? They act like a baby. They pout and they cry about it. They're angry about it. And the best proof that they need spiritual growth is when you tell them what they need to know, they act like a baby. The other day, Brother Dalton was telling me something. Uh, he was telling me about something that someone said. I'm not going to mention any names. But he, but he made a comment that I, fits, that I think fits perfectly right here. There was a person, he said, that made an offensive comment. 
And this comment could very easily have hurt another person's feeling. And it so happens that the person about whom this comment was made heard the comment. Now, Brother Dalton said, now this person was a mature Christian, and so they're not going to get mad about it. They heard what was said, but they're not going to get mad about it because they are a mature Christian. But he said, there are other Christians who, if they were in that same circumstance, they would not be as mature, and they would get mad over this. You know, that's a very good illustration. If you're somebody who gets angry easily, if someone makes an offhanded comment and you get offended by that, and it does this, it stops you from ministry, it stops you from carrying on with, you know what God wants you to do in the church, but you won't do it because you got angry at somebody said, you know what that tells me? No spiritual maturity. There needs to be some growth going on here. So growth needs to take place. And why? Because you need that to weather some storms. You, you need a growth process so you can be strong and you can get over those petty things that are said. We have to remember something about church, folks. I mean, we're all human. We all say, say things that we shouldn't say. There are going to be some unhappy moments, that's to be sure. But there will be a whole lot more unhappy moments if you take every little comment that's said and say, I'm done with church. Now, you know, that's all the ministry for me. I'm not even going to be involved because somebody said something. Well, shame on you. Shame on you if you act like that because that's acting like a baby. You see, it doesn't matter how old you are when you enter into the Christian life. It doesn't matter how old you are because you start out just like everybody else. You start out as a baby. Now, sometimes when uh, people later in their lives decide that they want to go back to school... Uh, there are some colleges and universities that will give you life credits. You ever heard of those? I mean, uh, a life credit. I mean, you've got certain experiences, and so you go back to school, and you can skip some of the introductory courses because you have life experience. But I want to tell you something. When you come into the Christian life as a newborn baby in Christ, it doesn't matter how old you are, and it doesn't matter how much experience you have. There is nothing in this world physically that will equip you spiritually. There's nothing here in this world that will make you otherworldly. It can't happen that way. There are no shortcuts to this. There has to be a growth process. You have to continually grow in order to reach that higher spiritual life. So there's some things that have to be learned. Spiritual maturation has to take place. You know, folks, this is why that I can speak with saved children who act better than saved adults. Because it doesn't matter how you come into the Christian life. At what age? You're still a baby. I don't have to spend any time. Have you seen me in here counseling with little children that got saved about all the problems that they've got? Do you see me counseling with them? But I sure have to spend a whole lot of time with adults. Because they're still babies, spiritually. And that's the truth of the matter. So you need spiritual growth. You need spiritual strength because of spiritual immaturity. Then you also need this because of spiritual animosity. You need strength because of spiritual animosity. In other words, folks, there's always somebody out there who's ready to knock you down and trample on your Christianity. And you know something? There are people right here in your own church who want to knock you down and trample on your Christianity. There are people in your church who will try you like nobody else will. So you've got to have some strength for that. Where does that come from? Where, do, where does this spiritual animosity come from? It comes from our adversary, doesn't it? it? comes from the devil. 
And we get over to chapter 6, Paul is going to say something that's very familiar to all of us. In chapter 6, he says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, now here's something that you've got to consider carefully. There is a problem in your everyday Christian life dealing with your flesh. There is a problem in your everyday Christian life dealing with people who don't like you since you got saved. There is a problem every day in your Christian life being around people who are not impressed at all with the fact that you are a Christian. But worse than that, worse than that, is a spiritual warfare that's taking place in the unseen spiritual world. And it's all around us, even right here at this very moment. There is a spiritual warfare going on. You've got to have the strength to fight that. And you know why it is? Because not only is the devil strong, he's much stronger than you, but not only is he strong, but the devil is also a mastermind of deceit. He knows how to fool you. The devil's wily. He's cunning. And things that look good to you and things that look like the right way to go is really just an illusion of the devil. You see, the devil knows Scripture. Remember me talking about that a Sunday morning a couple weeks ago? The devil knows Scripture. He knows more Bible than you'll ever know. He knows all about the Bible. And you know what he does? He takes that knowledge that he has of the Scriptures and he's able to reason with you. He's able to make you think things are right when they're not right. Now, I think there's a lot of nonsense that goes on in our Baptist churches today because people are reasoning with the devil instead of reasoning with the Holy Spirit. They've let the devil introduce his arguments and they believe what the devil has to say rather than what God has to say. We need some Holy Spirit conviction to steer us right. Now, here's something else that you need to catch on to very quickly, and I hope you understand this. Many of our fundamental churches are focusing on the outward man as if that's where Satan focuses his attack. I mean, they try really hard to regulate what you are on the outside. And so they're going to spend a lot of time talking about the way you dress and things like that. They've got all kinds of rules and regulations, and they want to talk about that. But they spend very little time talking about the inner man. Focus the, uh, folks, the focus of Satan's attack is the inner man. It's not the outward man. He bombards you with innuendos and suggestions and evil thoughts. What does the Bible say? Jesus said in Matthew, Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth. This defileth a man. Let me tell you something. Cleaning up the outside is not going to help your spiritual strength. What defiles you is what is in the heart. And that's where Satan focuses the attack. Proverbs says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. You don't hear me preach a whole lot about the outward man. Sometimes I do preach about that. But you know why I don't preach a lot about it? Because it doesn't do any good unless what's on the outside is motivated by what's on the inside. And when you've got it on the inside, it'll start to show on the outside. So I'm going to put my focus on the inside, on the inner man, on the inner strength rather than the outward man. And when I do that, God's going to pull the rest of you along. You'll get sanctified on the outside when you've been sanctified on the inside. So let's don't get the order reversed, what has to be done. Spiritual strength is essential because we come into the Christian life immature as babies and we face spiritual animosity, the animosity of both men and the devil. Now, the next lesson that we need to learn about spiritual strength is the experienced weakness. 
Now, I think this should be obvious to us that if we don't have spiritual strength, then we must have spiritual weakness. Most people don't want to be perceived as weak. If you're weak, you want to get rid of weakness. When you're sick and physically unable to do something, if you have to drag yourself around all the time, if you have to pull yourself out of bed in the morning, the thing that is on your mind is getting rid of the weakness and trying to become strong. Well, folks, understand this, that Satan is rarely attacking your body. He spends time dealing with your mind. You know, even doctors tell us that, that the state of the mind has a whole lot to do with how you feel in your body. And the state of the mind has a whole lot to do spiritually about the amount of strength that you have. So, so what do we experience? What kind of weakness do we experience? We experience this. We experience the attack on the mind. Satan attacks the mind. One of the fiercest attacks that Satan has is to inundate us with doubt. The thing that Satan wants to do is to get you in a mood of doubt where you doubt your salvation, where you think that God doesn't care about you, where you think that God doesn't know what's going on in your life. And so he attacks your mind. Now, as Paul writes about prayer here, the greatest enemy of prayer is doubt. Jesus said that we are to believe as we pray. We're to pray that we, will be, that we will receive. Pray as if we will receive, I should say. We believe that we'll receive. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I will therefore that men everywhere, pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Doubt's the opposite of faith. And if Satan can keep your mind in a state of doubt, then he keeps you from receiving that essential strength that I spoke about. Satan can also work on your mind with depression. And depression will leave you in weakness faster than anything else that Satan can use. Depression puts you upside down in the world. You know what I mean by that? Depression puts you upside down in the world. Because someone who is truly depressed is kept from doing the things that get them out of depression. What gets you out of depression? Prayer. But a person who's depressed doesn't want to pray. And so it's an endless cycle that you're going through. I'm depressed, I won't pray. And so I can't get out of depression. Well, how do you avoid depression? Do this. First of all, you understand from day number one, there is an attack on your mind. Go back to verse in Proverbs. Keep thy heart with all diligence. You know what that means? Not talking about your physical pumping, blood pumping organ in your chest. That's not what it means. Keep your heart with all diligence. That's emblematic. That's emblematic of the, of the inner man. It's emblematic of your mind, of the seat of the emotions of man. And so what we have to do is guard the mind. And if you don't, you'll be ripe for depression. You've got to watch your mind. Now, I think about that sermon I preached a, a few weeks ago from John. Jesus said this in John 7. If any man thirst... Let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And you know what Jesus is talking about here? He's speaking to Christians and he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And the only way to have these rivers of living water and to have the Holy Spirit working through you is to be filled with the Spirit. And you can't be filled with the Spirit when you're filled with something else. God cannot fill you if there's something else in your life that's taking up all of the room. And the converse of that is true also. If you keep your mind filled with spiritual things, it can't be filled with depression. There's no room for depression. 
because your mind's already filled. Satan also attacks the mind by causing you to wonder. W-A-N-D-R, causing you to wonder. And then he also causes you to wonder. W-O-N-D-R sometimes. You know, you don't wonder. Your mind doesn't wonder when you read the newspaper. When you watch TV, your mind doesn't wonder. Sit down and read your Bible. Start praying what happens. Start listening to a sermon like this one, and some of you already got one eye closed. Your mind starts to wonder. You know, this is why, don't anybody get mad at me. This is why I think it's better to sit up to the front in church, you know, because when you sit in the back, you watch what everybody else is doing, and your mind starts to wonder, and pretty soon you're concentrating on what they're doing instead of what's going on up here. One of the things you'll find, maybe not in this church, that in many churches, the, the uh, cranky people, the depressed people sit on the back row. They don't, <laughs> they don't usually sit up front. And uh, I can say it's not as bad in this church as it is in some churches, but I've been in churches where the people that you don't have problems with are the only ones are the ones that sit on the front row. There's nothing else that's distracting them. So maybe we could do this. Depending on how spiritual you are and what stage you are in your Christian life, we'll call that where you're sitting in church. And so if you're sitting on the third or fourth row, there's room for improvement still in your life. You can still move up. Now you'll notice where I am. I've gotten beyond the rows. I mean, I'm right next to heaven, so that's what, what happens. Now I better move on. I've lost most of you now. So where else do we experience weakness? Where else? I think also with the apprehension of the truth. One of the best examples to see the weakness of many Christians is right here in the book of Ephesians. Whenever we think about the gospel, we like to present it this way. We like to say that the gospel is so simple that even a little child can understand. And that's true. The gospel is simple. In fact, that's one of the attractions. I mean, that's the appeal of the gospel because it's so simple. You don't have to have a seminary degree in order to get saved. You don't have to know every book of the Bible to be saved. You don't have to memorize scripture to be saved. doesn't require that. But while the gospel is simple, it's also amazingly complex. Why do we have such a thing as theologians? Why do people devote their lives to the study of the Bible? Why do we have theologians? Because when you start to study the Bible, you learn there's more there than you could ever fathom. There's more in the Bible than you can ever touch bottom. There's more in salvation itself that you can't get to the bottom of it. And so when we come to a book like Ephesians, there are a lot of people say, well, I don't understand it. I don't understand what Paul is trying to say. And when you get into all that election stuff and that predestination stuff, I don't understand that. And so many people think, I'll I'll just ignore it then, and I hope that it goes away. And that's why you can go to churches, and they don't dare step on this subject. They're not stepping into this subject. And when they do, they very quickly display complete ignorance. Folks, you can't run through Ephesians. We're on sermon number 28 right now, and I'm not finished with the third chapter, and I've left out a lot of stuff. There's still so much that we can learn right here. Your mind has to be strengthened to receive these truths. In fact, folks, if your mind is not strengthened, you won't even realize that there's more here than meets the eye. 
You don't even realize what's behind what Paul has written. You can read the words, but it doesn't mean anything. It takes some spiritual strength to understand these things. You know, I've heard a a preacher say this. We preach the simple gospel, and there's no need for all of this doctrinal and theological stuff. But you want to know the real truth of the matter? It is a sin not to study this. And you know why? Because Paul wrote this to ordinary Christians. He expected ordinary Ephesian Christians to understand what he's writing. If he didn't, he wouldn't have wasted his time. How could anyone possibly say, we don't need doctrine? You know, they might as well say, read John 3.16. Throw the rest of the Bible away because that's all that we need. And you know, that's what some churches do. They read John 3.16, that's their subject. And they throw a little bit of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in with it. And you can read 1 Corinthians 6 and you'll see what I'm talking about. They'll combine those two things and that's the basic theme of all of their sermons. Folks, we need to be strengthened with more than that. Learning the Bible expels weakness. When you begin to experience and understand these things in the Bible, then you reach the highest possibilities of your Christian life. I'm going to talk about this more as we go through the sermon, or go through the prayer, I should say. And in the, in the end, or as Paul's going along here, we're climbing a staircase here with these things. And in the end, we're going to get to the top. In about five weeks, I have a message titled, At the Top of the Stairs. And we're going to talk about how we got to the top of the stairs. And this is what it's all about, learning the Bible. Learning the Bible expels the weakness. Do you ever wonder why that there are some people who are never phased with anything that the world throws at them? Do you wonder why there's some people who are consistent in their Christian lives and they'll be here for services, they'll keep on, they'll keep on, they'll keep on serving the Lord and they never fall out? Do you ever wonder why that is? Take some time to see what they've learned. Go back and see how they've lived their life and what they have acquired from God's word. That's the secret of the whole thing. If you want to be consistent in your Christian life, Here's what you've got to do. You've got to gain this strength. And you've got to get deep into God's word and study and read God's word. But we need to go on. So let's go to the third lesson to be learned about strengthening the spiritual man. Thirdly, is the enabling agent. The enabling agent. Now the key to this part is found in the first five words of verse number 16. Paul says, that he would grant you. Now, folks, here's something that most of Christianity fails to recognize. The goodness, the mercy, the forgiveness, the peace, the hope, the stability, all of this that you have in the Christian life is granted by God. It only comes one way. God gives it. This is God's gift. Now, the first thing that we need to learn about the enabling agent is the grant of strength. Because if you're going to give strength, God has to give it. You're not going to acquire it on your own. God has to enable you for it. But before I deal with that particularly, there's, there's a great problem in Christianity understanding the word grant. Now, instead of grant, which is gratuitous, and grant means something that's given at the discretion of God, it's his to withhold or it's his to give. And instead of that, they want to substitute for it work. They want to substitute effort or they want to substitute obligation. And so they think by virtue of the fact that they are humans, they've been born into the human race, they're in this world by virtue of the fact that they're just here, God owes them something. God owes everybody something. 
And you know, that, that works itself out in human nature all of the time. In our country, people think that they're owed something. People think they're owed something from the public treasury. I'm owed a welfare check. Or I'm owed public assistance. Where do you think they got that idea? I'm going to tell you where people get that idea. They got it from religion. Because religion thinks the very same thing. It fosters the same opinions. God owes me something. Because whatever God does for one person, he has to do for me. He owes me this. He has to treat me just like everybody else. Actually, friends, there's nothing more foreign in the Bible than that thought. There's nothing more foreign than that. God grants us. He never owes us. There's no obligation. Now, this word grant or granted is used in Acts chapter 11, verse 18. It says, and when they heard these things, this is back at the time when Cornelius and his household was saved. When they heard these things, when the Jews heard about it, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. How do you get repentance? Repentance is a requirement for salvation. Did you know that? That's one of the things that we've learned is that repentance and faith are inseparable graces. That means you can't have one without the other. And where do you get faith? It's granted by God, isn't it? That's God's gift. Ephesians 2.8. Where do you get repentance? Right here. It's granted by God. But you know that the way that this is usually taught... The way most people look at it, repentance and faith are something that arises from within you. You have repentance and faith. You conjured up, if you want to put it that way, repentance and faith. And so, therefore, you can be saved. That's not what the Scriptures say. The Scriptures say it is granted. It's a gift from God. So, we're thinking people here. We're intelligent people. It's apparent to us that God has not granted All people, repentance, and faith. How do I know that? Because all people aren't saved. If all people had repentance and faith, all people would be saved. But God grants it to whomever he pleases, whenever he pleases, and he withholds it from whomever he pleases, whenever he pleases. And do you know why? Because God does not owe anybody anything. God has no obligation. You know, I'm amazed when there are some preachers who say, uh, a preacher who say, well, thank God, You had the good sense to get saved. You know what that person is saying? He's saying, you granted yourself faith. God didn't give it to you. It doesn't come from God. You give yourself faith. You give your repentance. You give your own repentance. God doesn't give it to you. I want you to notice here, when the Jews heard that this household of Cornelius was saved, when they exhibited the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives, what did they say? Thank God the Gentiles had enough sense to get saved. I didn't read that. They said, then God hath granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. God gave it to them. Now, how does that apply to what our subject is? God gives us strength. God is the one who grants strength in the Christian life. You know, you can read the Bible 16 hours a day if you want to. You can read it and read it and read it. And unless you have a grant from God, it'll never mean anything to you. It won't help you at all. Now, praise God for this, folks. He is more interested in strengthening us than we are in being strengthened. Did you hear that? He is more interested in strengthening us than we are in being strengthened. He strengthens us in spite of us, not because of us. You see the difference? So here's the thing about a grant. 
You can be as weak, as weak as you can possibly be. But if you humble yourself before God, if you smite yourself on your breast and you say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, God will grant you the strength that you need. He grants it. He's not interested in withholding strength. And he has a whole lot of this to give. Notice what Paul says in verse 16, according to the riches of his glory. Who's richer than God? Nobody. Who owns it all? God. So he has a storehouse of strength. All that you need, God has, and he'll grant it if you ask. But then also, besides the grant of strength, there is the grace of the Spirit. Who is this enabling agent? It's the Spirit of God. You see, it's the Holy Spirit who convicted us. It's the Holy Spirit who enabled us to believe. And it's the Holy Spirit who sustains us. How do you, be, how do you become a truly spiritual person? It only comes by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's a scripture that's familiar to all of us. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now, here we see that the grace of God, the grace of the Spirit, is not reserved for everybody. It's reserved for you. It isn't shared with unbelievers. The grace of the Spirit that I'm talking about, I'm not talking about grace and salvation at this point. I'm talking about the grace after salvation, the grace to be strengthened. It isn't shared with unbelievers. So therefore, unbelievers don't get strengthened this way. Now, an unbeliever doesn't understand it. According to 1 Corinthians 2.14, it takes the enlightening of the Holy Spirit to have this strength. You see, you can have somebody come to you. You're a Christian, and you have a lost friend who comes to you, and they need help. And so you say to them, well, here's the thing that you need to do. You need to read the Bible. You need to start praying. You need to meditate, and you need to contemplate all of these things that are in the Bible. Do you know that that's not going to help them? It won't do them a bit of good. Not until the Holy Spirit opens their eyes. Not until the Holy Spirit speaks to them will it ever do anybody any good to pray or to read the Bible. The strength comes from him. So how do you cope with grief? And why is it that a lost person doesn't understand how Christians cope with grief? Why is it that lost people can't handle adversity and they don't understand how Christians can go through things? They'll, they'll never understand it. Not until the Holy Spirit shows it to them. Not until he opens their eyes. One time I was witnessing to a person and I asked this person about their faith and what they thought about going to heaven. And this person said, well, I really don't go to church as if church was going to save them. But they said, I really don't go to church, but I am a spiritual person. In other words, I'm not a born again believer, but I'm a spiritual person. You know, I agree with that statement. I I agree with that. We're all spiritual people. There's nothing unusual about a person being a spiritual person. We're all spiritual people. The question is, what spirit? Because there's only two spirits that operate in the world. I mean, I don't have to go a lot of, do a lot of searching to figure out what kind of spirit they're talking about or being a spiritual person because I know there's only two spirits. There's the spirit, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, and there is the spirit of Antichrist. That's the devil. That's the only two spirits that operate in the world. So when you say you're a spiritual person, what spirit are you talking about? Paul talks about being strengthened 
in the inner man by the Holy Spirit because any other spirit or any other strength is not the spiritual strength that's required. Now, I have one last statement for you, one final thought tonight. The Holy Spirit is our reinforcement for spiritual strength. A few weeks ago, I was driving back from the Central Valley from Fresno area, and I was coming back around 680 across the Benicia Bridge. And over there to the right, I noticed that they're building this big new bridge over there. And just at first glance, the bridge looked like it was almost completed. But I looked a little bit closer as I was driving by, and I noticed that there were sections of the bridge that weren't yet poured with concrete. They hadn't been connected yet. And so out of the ends of these uh, uh, pieces of the roadway of the bridge, there were all these steel rods that were sticking out, rebar, just hundreds of rebar that were sticking out of those. Those steel rods are used to reinforce the concrete. Now, all of us have had experience with concrete. When, uh, when you're a, a child and you're riding your bike and you fell off, you gained some experience about concrete. You found out concrete's hard. And it's harder than some kids' heads. You found out concrete's hard. Concrete's strong. Concrete's durable. But do you know that nobody's going to take that same concrete that's in a sidewalk and put it in a bridge? Because a sidewalk doesn't have to endure the stress. It doesn't have the strain. It doesn't have the weight that's put on it that a bridge does. And so when they build a bridge, they beef up the concrete. And they put all these steel rods in there to reinforce that concrete so it can withstand all of the pressures. And that's the way it is in the Christian life. The bond between you and Christ is strong like concrete. I mean, it's durable. It's just like your flesh is not as hard as that concrete sidewalk, but, it's, but the concrete's hard, the concrete's durable. Your head's not going to break the sidewalk. That, that's not going to happen. And the bond between you and Christ is durable. It's hard. But folks, when it comes to enduring animosity, and when it comes to all the things that the world throws at you, and it comes to all the difficulties and problems of life, you need something more. And what you need is the inner strength. What you need is the Holy Spirit and the reinforcement of the Holy Spirit. Now, the question is, will you go to heaven if you never grow in your Christian life? You receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. You stop right there and you never grow in your Christian life. Are you going to heaven? Yes. But you'll never be a bridge. You'll never be a bridge that other people cross over to come to Jesus Christ. For that, it takes spiritual strength. It takes the ability to withstand. It takes the Holy Spirit reinforcing your life. You'll never do it until you're yielded body and soul to the Holy Spirit. So does that describe you? Did you come tonight because you wanted to be strengthened in the inner man? That's what we need. And that's the thing that Paul prays for, to be strengthened by his might in the inner man. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word how we need strength, how we need to be guided, how we need to be reinforced by the Holy Spirit. Lord, I just ask you that we would be more than just spiritual people, but that we would be holy spiritual people. And Lord, I just ask you that you'd speak to our congregation tonight, speak to our folks that, Lord, this is what we would desire, the inner strength that we need to live this Christian life and to be a witness and an example for all those that are around us. Lord, bless us in this invitation time. And may we truly follow you. May we decide to follow you tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.